are continuing our series in the Gospel of Luke. If I've not met you before, my name's Tom. I'm normally preaching over in Bathgate, but it is great to be here in Edinburgh. And so we are in this book in the Bible called the Gospel of Luke. The word gospel simply means good news. This story is the good news of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what that means for us. Now, today we're going to be looking at a, a power encounter, uh, a fellowship between two women who are both filled with faith because God has done something great in their lives. But before we look at that, I just want to reflect on one of the big themes that we have seen so far in this Gospel of Luke. When we start, we start in chapter 1 and we see that Luke, writing to his friend Theophilus, stating that this word of God, this, this story that he's getting ready to tell is trustworthy because it's based on on eyewitness accounts. And then we get into Gabriel talking to Zechariah and him not believing this report. And then the same angel Gabriel coming to Mary and saying this baby is going to be born through you and she believes the report. And so each of the first three episodes so far have in some way dealt with this theme of faith. Now when we use the word faith, there are different pictures that might come up in some of our minds. But faith is very simply this. Faith is believing God. Faith is taking him at his word. Faith is simply acting like God is not a liar. And so one of the big ideas that comes out of this first section of Luke is very simply that God's word is a reliable platform for our faith, that we can trust God and trust his word and that it's true. Now, a couple of years ago when they opened the Queen's Ferry Crossing, we had some folk in our congregation who signed up and had the chance to walk across it. I don't know if any of you had that chance, but it was a, a big day. And I remember all the lead up to that. Everybody was real excited that they get to walk across the bridge and you know, before they let cars going over it. And there's all this chatter. And I remember lots of things being said, but there's one thing that I distinctly remember not being said. And it was this. I don't know if that bridge is going to hold us up. Now, we got some engineers in the room today, and when you drive across the Queens Ferry Crossing, for those of you who have, I'm guessing that you did it with absolute confidence, that when you approached that bridge, it wasn't with fear and trepidation. Can I, can I trust this bridge? Will it hold me up? Now, why is it that we trust absolutely a bridge designed and built by humans, but when it comes to God's Word, we start asking questions? When it comes to the Bible, we imagine ourselves like we're in some kind of Indiana Jones film, walking across this old dilapidated, can I trust it? I better be careful where my next step is. Luke is trying to drive this home that we can trust this Bible. God's word is absolutely secure and trustworthy. That's one of the big themes. Another theme that we see emerging from the beginning bits of this text is simply that God plays chess on two levels simultaneously. When we look at his encounter with Zechariah, when you look at his encounter with Mary, we see him working at a deeply personal level. God's doing something in each of their lives that's quite personal. They're both having babies. And yet, God is playing chess at a, 
entirely higher level at the same time. He's putting his people in place for his purpose to accomplish salvation for the world. And so God plays chess on these two levels at the same time. Our personal destinies and God's redemptive history are intertwined. And this is just the way that God works. Now, as we come to our text for today, we're in Luke chapter 1. We're going to be reading 39 through 55, but this is in two parts. And we're going to be seeing this fellowship of faith, and then we're going to be looking at a song of faith. And we're doing this in the context of Luke having reminded us in these first three episodes that we can trust God that we can believe his word. And so let's start by looking at part one, which is the fellowship of faith. And this is chapter one, verse 39 in the Gospel of Luke. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in the womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So here we have this fellowship of faith, and I just want to go back and want us to walk through this verse by verse so we don't miss anything that it is that the Lord would have to say to us this morning. So in verse 39, we see this, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country in the town of Judah. She entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Now, in those days is referring to what had just happened. And what had just happened is that this angel Gabriel had come to her, even though she's a virgin, says, you're going to have a baby by the Holy Spirit. And so the, in those days, are, she has, based on this, she says that she went with haste. She hurried down to see her cousin Elizabeth. Now, this was part of the announcement that this angel Gabriel had made to her, that behold, your cousin Elizabeth, also in her old age, has conceived a son. Now, this in those days also references the other bits of this announcement. And in verse 37, just which is, is not here, but it's just right before what you looked at last week, for nothing will be impossible with God. Again, underlining this attitude of faith, this, this position, this approach of faith that God wants his people to have. For nothing will be impossible with God. Some of us in our interaction with God, we take the exact opposite approach. Everything is, is impossible for God except what I happen to experience. We reverse engineer it. And the Lord is telling us up front boldly, nothing is impossible. Whether you have experienced it or not, it's not impossible. So in those days, Mary goes down. Now, this raises an interesting question for me that the Bible doesn't answer. But sometimes, and you might be like this too, we want to speculate a little bit and read between the lines. And the thing that I'm curious about is why is it that Mary would want to go and immediately be with her cousin Elizabeth? What is that all about? Well, you can imagine, 
a young teenage girl, mid to late teens, receiving this announcement from this angel, you're going to have a baby, and you go back and you read it, and he's going to be the Messiah. I mean, this is incredibly daunting news. And so before she is showing, before she's visibly pregnant, she realizes, I need to be in a place and in a context where this word from this angel can be nurtured. I need to be in a place where the destiny that God has put on my life can be fed. Because you can imagine the small village in Nazareth where it's not necessarily going to be the most destiny-conducive kind of place to be. And so she goes with haste to be with her cousin Elizabeth, hoping that she's going to find some faith in, from this woman of faith who's going through a similar thing. So verse 40, she enters the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And then verse 41 is really interesting. Elizabeth heard, when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. Now, you recall that when Gabriel spoke to Zechariah about John the Baptist, whom his wife Elizabeth would bear, he said that he's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to prepare the way. And one of the other remarkable statements that Gabriel said about Zechariah is that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the womb. And so here we have John, even in the womb, exercising his forerunner function. He's letting his mama know that this really is the Messiah. He just starts doing whatever it is that babies do in the room, kicking and jumping and moving all around. But then Elizabeth gives us her interpretation of what has just happened. And she does it at the end of verse 41, filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, as we walk through this Gospel of Luke, we're going to see that being filled with the Holy Spirit is a big theme. Now, the difference is that Mary and Elizabeth here function as Old Testament believers. This is before the cross, this is before the resurrection, and before Pentecost. And in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would just come on people from time to time. That all changes with Pentecost, where the gift of the Holy Spirit is poured out for us so that we have a perpetual communing with God in a way that Old Testament believers did not. So in this moment, Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit. God comes on her, and then she starts making these faith declarations about Mary. And this is quite remarkable. She makes three blessings, but before she gets to the blessings, she explains what it is that her baby has just done. The baby leaped in her womb, and then she says in verse 43, Why is this granted to me? that the mother of my Lord should come to me. Now, this is a remarkable statement for, for several reasons. One is that she was the older woman. So it should have been Mary giving her respect. And actually, here Elizabeth is giving her respect and saying, because of the one that you carry in your womb, you have given me a great honor just by coming into my house and visiting me. Who is this? And then she calls him Lord. This, this one that you're carrying is Lord. Now, one of the big things that we're going to see in Luke and in all the other synoptic gospels is that Jesus takes his disciples on a journey of discovery. And the big journey of discovery is simply who he is, his identity. And this is going to be a big theme as we go through Luke. And so 
we see this in Luke chapter 9, we see this in Mark chapter 8, and in Matthew chapter 16, these three different accounts of what happened at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus, after spending time and ministering with his disciples, brings them to this power question, who do you think I am? And Peter gives them the right answer. You are the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of the living God. And even then, though, they didn't understand that the kind of Messiah he was was the kind that was going to have to die so that they could be saved. And so here, her, Elizabeth's reference as Lord is probably not the full Christological revelation that we would tend to read back into this on this side of the cross and the resurrection. Elizabeth is simply, rec- is simply acknowledging that that this one that Mary is, is carrying is the Messiah, the one who's promised from of old. And she's just blessed that Mary, carrying the Messiah, would honor her by coming to visit her. And then she, she goes on and gives this explanation in verse 44. For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And so it wasn't just a movement, but somehow she was able to tell that the joy of the Lord is filling this baby because he is now in the presence of the one, also in embryonic form, who is going to save the world. And so there are these two cousins having some kind of divine joy moment in the womb. Now, I don't fully understand all that. I don't know how all that happened other than the Holy Spirit in John recognized the Holy Spirit in Jesus and that he was the one that he was going to be being the forerunner of. And this little baby just started doing his Scottish jig right there in the womb. And she interprets it as joy. So even as a baby in the womb, John is functioning as a forerunner, filled with the Holy Spirit and experiencing joy. Now, then we come to what is, for me, the most powerful part of this encounter. Elizabeth makes three statements of blessing over Mary. Now, I think this is critical because of all the things that Elizabeth could have said. Now, again, in my reading of this, Mary flees Nazareth because she wants to be in an atmosphere of faith. And look what Elizabeth does not say. Elizabeth doesn't say, who do you think you are? She doesn't say, you're just having delusions of grandeur. Your baby's not going to be the Messiah. This is just, you've brought scandal on your whole family. You just need to go back to Nazareth, and how dare you come in here? You're not even, you're just engaged to a man. You're not married and This is just embarrassing for your whole family. You've embarrassed us all. Get on back to Nazareth. That's not what she says. She pronounces three blessings over Mary. Look at these. First, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And then the one in verse 45, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So these three blessings. First, Blessed are you among women. Now, she could be saying that you are a woman, and out of all the women, you've been blessed, and you're, you're just blessed. But this seems to be saying that she is blessed in a special way. 
And she is. And the purpose or the reason why she's blessed in a special way is because of the next phrase, blessed is the fruit of your womb. You are blessed because of the one you carry. And then she adds this, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So Mary is blessed, and Elizabeth speaks this blessing over her. Mary is blessed because God chose her and because of the one that she carries. Now, this is the big lesson that I extract from this passage, and it's very simply that when God is doing something even embryonic in our lives, we need to surround ourselves with words of faith and blessing. We live in a world that is dominated by what I call a crab culture. You know, the thing about crabs is that you can put 10 of them in a bucket and none of them will climb out even if you leave the bucket open. Because as one of them's about to get to the top, another one trying to also get to the top will reach up and pull that one down. And so we have a choice in church about the kind of culture that we're going to build. We're either going to build a fellowship of faith where we're speaking words of life and destiny and promise and blessing over each other, or it's going to be a crab culture where we're pulling each other down. Mary fled down to the hill country in Judea because she believed that Elizabeth was going to be this faith culture speaking life and blessing, and she was absolutely right. Elizabeth speaks these words of blessing over her. Mary found solace in this fellowship of faith. And that brings us to part two, which is the song of faith. Now, this is a famous bit of scripture called the Magnificat, which is from the, the Latin Vulgate translation of the, the, the second part of verse 46, my soul magnifies the Lord. So let's read this song and then we'll Unpack it and see what it is that the Lord has for us here. My, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown great strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the, heart, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped Israel his servant in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, even, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. So she, Mary begins, after Elizabeth has spoken these blessings over her, Mary begins by magnifying the Lord. To magnify the Lord is to declare and to think and to feel how great God is. All of us magnify things. Every day, there are different things that loom large or small in our consciousness. Mary made a conscious decision to let God be the dominant thought and perspective and uh, thing that she's looking at that's really big and, and dominant. 
So this raises a question for us, what's big for you? you know, this is what we do with magnifying glasses. You know, when you're uh, you know, a, a child and you, you see an ant, you pick up this magnifying glass and it makes this little ant look really big. And so sometimes we take small things and magnify them and make them big when, when these, these lesser details of life end up dominating us. Now, as Miriam said earlier, you know, God, God is big and God's bigger than we can imagine and Great and, and, and big is God, and he is. And so our tendency is to think, well, God's already so big enough, I don't need to magnify him. And Mary actually said, no, he is big, but I want to magnify him anyway because even after all my magnification, it's still not big enough because God's bigger than my capacity to magnify him. So this whole song of faith comes out of magnifying the Lord and starting with this thought, God is great. And as she goes on, we, lean, we learn some other things about Mary's perspective of God. Verse 47, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. So here, even, even Mary is acknowledging her need to be saved. God is my Savior, and my spirit rejoices in Him. God has saved me. Salvation is from the Lord. I can't save myself, but God has saved me, and I'm going to rejoice in what He has done. Now, in this pre-cross pre-resurrection perspective on salvation, the big Old Testament type of this was when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt and brought them through these waters of the Red Sea. And so that in the Old Testament is the, the ultimate picture of salvation and deliverance. And so Mary is reflecting back on that and other Old Testament perspectives and personalizes it, saying, God is my Savior. It's not just that he saves, but he's my Savior. I have personally experienced his salvation. Verse 48, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Now, to look on in the Old Testament would, was to look on with favor, to not just look at, but to look on with a smile. This is a picture of grace. Now, grace is God's unmerited, unearned love and favor. A way of thinking about grace is that it's very simply the smile of God that you don't deserve, but it greets you every morning when you wake up. When you wake up to tomorrow morning, God the Father is smiling at you through Christ. Why? Because he's good. Not because you're good. If he's smiling at you because you're good, you've deserved it. And if you've deserved it, it's not grace. God's grace is his goodness towards us because he is good. He has looked on the humble estate of his servant. And then she goes on and makes, for me, one of the most remarkable statements in this whole thing. She says, behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. Now, that's a remarkable statement. This, this book of Luke was written somewhere between 60 and 80 A.D. So that's somewhere between 30 and 50 years after the resurrection of Jesus. And so, you know, some scholars date it later, around the 80s, some early in the 60s. But even if you take the late date, this is still very early in history, only at the maximum 50 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus. So Christianity, even though it had spread some in those 50 years, there were, scholars vary on their estimation of how many Christians there were in on the, the, the planet at that time, maybe 50,000. I mean, if you want to be really, really generous with you, you could say maybe 100,000, but probably not that high. And here she is recording to Luke, 
reflecting back on this is the song that I sung when I was in the fellowship of faith. And one of the things that I said to the Lord in this moment and exclaimed was all generations are going to call me blessed. This is remarkable foresight. All generations have called her blessed. Now, I'm not a math guy, but there are approximately three generations, approximately 30 years in each century of 100 years. And so I don't know what 100 times 30 is, but some, somebody can figure that out. That's uh, or 100 times, no, it's been 20, 20 centuries. And see, I already, I'm just proving this. I'm not a math guy. 20 centuries and three per century. What is that, 60? Is that about, yeah, 60, 70 generations, something like that? That's a whole lot of generations. But the truth is, every one of those has called Mary blessed. Why? She got it right. Why? Not because she's great, but because of this one that she was carrying. And then she continues to reflect in verse 49 on God's greatness to her. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Now we get God's might, and we get that God is holy. But in between those two, she says, God has done great things for me. It's okay, and it's even good to take a moment and reflect that God has been good to you. This is not just a theological treatise. She is personalizing God's intervention in her life. And then she goes, and she says, His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, to fear God is to give him the respect that he is due to honor him for who he is, to, to, to make room for him and acknowledge, yes, you are God, and you're great, and you're mighty. And she's saying that that kind of, that kind of fear, that kind of respect is a magnet for his mercy. God is merciful, especially where he bumps into that kind of respect. And then in this next section, we come to what is, there, there are two things about this next section that are really important. The first one is what I call the great reversal. And as we read this, I want you to notice what's being shifted around here. The second is the timeline. I want you to notice the verb tense of what she says next. And so she starts in verse 51. It says, he has shown strength with his arm. Now, this is an anthropomorphism or a projecting onto God a, a human capacity. He's shown strength with his arm. He's, he's, he's being strong here. God, God's, and then she goes and says, this is what he has done. This is how he has shown that. First, he has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He's exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. So, there are three lower movements and one upward movement. Look at the three lower movements. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty. He has the rich sent away empty. And so, the rich are sent away empty. The mighty are put down from their thrones. And the proud in their thoughts are scattered. What's the common denominator with all three of those things? Very simply, it's self-reliance. The proud, the wealthy, the rich don't have to trust in God because they got everything they need, they got it made, and so there's no need to rely on the Lord. Now, we just, in our congregation in Bathgate, just had a, a family move back from uh, South Africa. This was uh, the man 73 years old now, and he left Scotland when he was 18 and moved to South Africa. I get that. He wanted to be in some sunshine. 
But then finally, I guess the sunshine ran out, and he, he was growing uh, lonesome for his wee home in the Glen and moved back, and he's, he's back here now. And in those intervening years, he's struck by how secular Scotland has become. But he also made this observation that we are such a rich nation. Now, the difficulty with hearing that is that most of us don't think of ourselves as rich. That's because we judge ourselves by the people that are around us. We kind of look around and say, well, you know, I, you know rich is the guy that I see on TV. I'm, I, I'm not rich. I'm just like a normal guy. Well, yeah, in a Scottish context, you're, you're just a, a normal guy or a normal gal. But in a global context, we're also rich. And so when he's trying to understand this, this deep secularization that he stepped back into, he makes this observation to me just this past week in conversation that it really must be rooted in the self-reliance that we have, that we're so rich we just don't need God. Whereas in many nations around the world, they still do. And so Mary is here acknowledging that God is going to accomplish a great reversal, that those who think they've got everything they need, actually they don't, but those who are humble, those who acknowledge their need, get exalted. Those of humble estate and the hungry are filled with good things. Now, the other thing that I want you to notice here is not just the great reversal, but notice the verb tense. What verb tense is Mary using? I know you didn't come to church today to revisit grammar, but this is really important. She's using the past tense. In Greek, it's the aorus. But how could she be talking in the past when Jesus hasn't even been born yet? And the truth, the eschatological or end times picture she's painting is not fully finished until the second coming of Jesus. And so she's, she's identifying these themes of this great reversal in a way that talking as if something has already been done before it is even complete or happened. And so there are two things about this that we can say. First of all, just by God's giant entrance in the human history in Christ, God has, like the first domino that falls, God has set in motion all of the toppling and the raising that she describes right here. And so God, in sending Christ, has acted decisively, and so it's as if it's already done. But the other observation that we could make is that from God's perspective, it is done. And just to hold your finger there, for those of you, the three of you who are using paper Bibles, and the, the rest who are using digital ones, flip over to Romans chapter 8 with me for just a moment, because I want you to see something. In Romans chapter 8, we find Paul using the exact same tense construction regarding our salvation he talks in the past and three of these things if you are a believer and you have been saved then three of these things have already happened in your life this is what we read in verse 30 it says and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, the first three of these we get. If you are saved today, it's because you were predestined. 
if you're saved today, it is because you are called. And if you are saved today, it is because you have been justified. Now, predestination is God's pre-planning of your salvation. Calling is when he calls you to himself externally through the gospel and internally by the work of the Holy Spirit. And justification is God's announcement over your life, not guilty, because of what Jesus has done. Because of what Jesus has done. Not guilty. So you have been predestined. You have been called. You have been justified. But then, look what he says about glorification. Now, glorification is the final act where we cast off this temporary body and put on immortality in what we call the glorified body. Now, I woke up, looked at myself in the mirror this morning, and I thought immediately, this is not the glorified body. Praise God, it's on the way. But this is good news for all of us. Don't be intimidated by what you see in the mirror. This is not your final destiny. This thing called glorification where we actually step into eternity. Spiritually, we step into full experiential participation in the Trinitarian fellowship that has been going on eternally. Physically, we cast off mortality and put on immortality. But and we know that that's coming. This is our promise. This is the destiny towards which we are moving. But look, how does Paul talk about it? He says, you have been glorified. What does that mean? Very simply this. From God's perspective, it is a done deal. From God's perspective, your glorification is as secure as your justification. From God's perspective, it is impossible for there to be any other future other than the one that God already knows exists. And so what that means is that you can trust God completely because the God who justifies you is the same God who glorifies you. And if he has justified you, he is going to glorify you, which means that the fullness of God's purpose for your life will come to pass and your ultimate destiny in God is secure because God's great and he's going to make it secure. Now, that's good news for us. That's why Paul wrote it to the Romans. But this is the same verb tense that Mary is using. So in the same way that Paul talks about our salvation, ultimate salvation, as a done deal, Mary is describing this great reversal as a done deal. All of this has happened because God has determined it will happen. And then she finishes up by saying, He has helped, again in the past, He's helped to serve in Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And so very simply, in sending Jesus, God has acted to fulfill the promises that he made to Abraham. And so as we reflect on this, there are just a couple of observations and applications that I want to make in in closing. First of all, this, the, the observation that this song of, of Mary, it, it brings with it a lot of Old Testament themes. And so the song of faith simply comes from these two sources. First, it comes from reflection on God's word. Mary has obviously been reflecting and, and reading and pondering God's word. You can read 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, the song that Hannah sang when God also visited her with a child to see some of these same themes coming through. But the second thing is that Mary had put herself in the fellowship of faith. And so reflecting on God's word and being in this atmosphere of faith, this is the source of this song of faith. The, the other application is this that, like Mary, 
We have to be very precious with the word of God to us. We have to protect and cherish things that God has spoken to us and that he's doing in our life. And we have to be very careful with whom we share those things. There were probably some people in Nazareth that had Mary shared with them what she felt like God was doing in her life. It would not, that conversation would not have gone well. And so she relocated herself so that this, this dream could be cherished and, and cultivated in this atmosphere of faith. And that brings us to my final thought, and that's simply this. All of us have a choice about how we are going to respond to the work of God in each other's life. And it's very simply this. You can torpedo faith or you can feed faith. All of us have had those kind of encounters with somebody that they feel like it is their God-ordained function to torpedo faith anywhere they encounter it. You're in a meeting trying to, to, to brainstorm. We're, we're gonna, th- the purpose of this meeting is to brainstorm together in faith about how we can reach our community with the gospel. And somebody says, well, what if we... There's someone that as soon as those words are out of their mouth, they are there with a double-sized giant bazooka exploding it and blowing it out of. I'm like, look, even if it's the worst idea ever, at least let it just have five seconds of existence before you torpedo the thing. At least give them credit for, I feel like you're trying to make a positive contribution here. No, in actuality, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard, but... We all know those people, and that actually comes out of a deep insecurity. That comes out of someone who is not magnifying God. So when you're magnifying God, you're able to move in faith. The opposite is exactly what Elizabeth did. She's speaking blessings over this word that Mary shares us. For us to do what God has called us to do, we have to build a culture of faith, speaking words of blessing over each other. And so we started today by saying that our personal destiny and God's redemptive purpose meet in Christ. God's playing chess at two different levels. God's going to do what God's going to do. He's going to unfold his purpose, but we each have a part to play in that. And for us to each play our part, we have to build this this culture of faith where we're speaking words of blessing over each other. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us do this. Our Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for these two women of faith who dared to believe you when you were acting in their lives. Father, we confess that often we we doubt you and that it's difficult sometimes for us, Lord, to to believe your word. So, Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you would, you would help us today. Lord, we pray that we would dare to believe you and your word. We ask in Jesus' name that you would torpedo in our lives those pockets of doubt and unbelief that, Lord, where we have difficulty trusting, Father, that we would, that we would dare to believe that your word to us is true. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Lord, we also pray that you would empower us by your spirit to speak words of blessing over each other. Lord, forgive us when we're quick to torpedo the dreams and aspirations and ideas that 
that other people carry in their hearts. I pray in Jesus' name that you would empower us by your spirit to speak words of life and blessing and destiny over each other so that we can be a culture of faith. We ask this, O Lord, in Jesus' name.